Book four, part two of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume three by Francois René de Chateaubriand, translated by Alexander Texera de Matos. Book four, part two. It was evident that a scamper was being contemplated. For fear of being detained, they did not even warn those who, like myself, would have been shot within an hour after Napoleon's entry into Paris. I met the Duc de Richelieu and the Champs-Élysées. They are deceiving us, he said. I am keeping watch here, for I do not propose to await the Emperor at the Tuileries all by myself. On the evening of the 19th, Madame de Chateaubriand had sent a servant to the Carousel, with instructions not to return until he had the certainty of the flight of the King. At midnight, as the man had not come in, I went to my room. I had just gone to bed when Monsieur Clausel de Cousergue entered. He told us that His Majesty had left and had gone in the direction of Lille. He brought me this news on the part of the Chancellor, who, knowing me to be in danger, was violating secrecy on my behalf, and sent me twelve thousand francs recoverable on my salary as Minister to Sweden. I was obstinately bent on remaining, not wishing to leave Paris until I should be physically certain of the royal removal. The servant who had been sent to reconnoitre returned. He had seen the court carriages go by. Madame de Chateaubriand pushed me into her carriage at four o'clock in the morning on the 20th of March. I was in such a fit of fury that I knew neither where I was going nor what I was doing. We passed out through the Barrière Saint-Martin. At dawn I saw crows coming down peacefully from the elms on the high road where they had spent the night to take their first meal in the fields without troubling their heads about Louis the Eighteenth and Napoleon. They were not obliged to leave their country and, thanks to their wings, they were able to laugh at the bad road along which I was being jolted. Old friends of Combourg, we were more alike in the old days when, at break of day, we used to breakfast on mulberries from the brambles in the thickets of Brittany. The roadway was broken up, the weather rainy, Madame de Chateaubriand poorly. She looked every moment through the little window at the back of the carriage, to see if we were not being pursued. We slept at Amiens, where Ducange was born, next at Arras, the birthplace of Robespierre. There I was recognised. When we sent for horses, on the morning of the 22nd, the postmaster said that they had been engaged for a general, who was taking to Lille the news of the triumphal entry of the Emperor-King into Paris. Madame de Chateaubriand was dying of fright, not for herself, but for me. I ran to the post-office, and removed the difficulty with money. On arriving under the ramparts of Lille, at two in the morning of the 23rd, we found the gates closed. The orders were not to open them to any one whomsoever. They could not or would not tell us if the king had entered the town. I induced the postillion for a few louis to make for the other side of the place, outside the glacis, and to drive us to Tournay. In 1792 I had covered the same road on foot during the night with my brother. On arriving at Tournay, I learnt that Louis XVIII had certainly entered Lille with Marshal Mortier, and that he meant to defend himself there. I dispatched a courier to Monsieur de Blacas, asking him to send me a permit to be received into the place. My courier returned with a permit from the commandant, but not a word from M. de Blacas. Leaving Madame de Chateaubriand at Tournay, I was getting into the carriage again to go to Lille, when the Prince de Condé arrived. We learnt through him that the king had gone, and that Marshal Mortier had had him accompanied to the frontier. From these explanations it became clear that Louis the Eighteenth was no longer at Lille when my letter arrived there. The Duc d'Orléans followed close after the Prince de Condé, under an apparent dissatisfaction, he was glad at bottom to find himself out of the hurly-burly. The ambiguousness of his declaration and of his behaviour bore the stamp of his character. As to the old Prince de Condé, 
The emigration was his household god. He had no fear of Monsieur de Bonaparte, not he. He fought if they liked, or went away if they liked. Things were a little muddled in his brain. He was none too clear as to whether he should stop at Ocroi to give battle there, or go to dine at the White Hart. He struck his tents a few hours before us, telling me to recommend the coffee at the inn to the members of his household whom he had left behind. He did not know that I had sent in my resignation on the death of his grandson. He was not very sure that he had had a grandson. He only felt a certain increase of glory in his name, which might come from some Condé whom he had forgotten. Do you remember my first passing through Tournay with my brother, at the time of my first emigration? Do you remember in that connection the man transformed into a donkey, the girl from whose ears grew corn-spikes, the rain of ravens that set everything on fire? In 1815, indeed, we ourselves were a rain of ravens but we set nothing on fire. Alas, I was no longer with my unfortunate brother. Between 1792 and 1815, the Republic and the Empire had passed. What revolutions had also been accomplished in my life? Time had ravaged me like the rest, and you, the young generations of the moment, let twenty-three years come, and then tell me in my tomb what has become of your loves and your illusions of to-day. The two brothers Bertin had arrived at Tournay, M. Bertin de Vaux returned from there to Paris. The other Bertin, Bertin the Elder, was my friend. You know through these memoirs what it was that attached me to him. From Tournay we went to Brussels. There I found no Baron de Bouteuil, nor Rivarol, nor all those young aides-de-camp who had become dead, or old, which is the same thing, no news of the barber who had given me shelter. I did not take up the musket but the pen. From a soldier I had become a paper-stainer. I was looking for Louis the Eighteenth. He was at Ghent, where he had been taken by Messieurs de Blacas and de Durat. Their first intention had been to ship the king to England. If the king had consented to this plan, he would never have reascended the throne. Having gone into a lodging-house to look at an apartment, I perceived the Duc de Richelieu smoking, half outstretched, on a sofa, at the back of a dark room. He spoke to me of the princess in the most brutal manner, declaring that he was going to Russia, and that he would not hear another word about those people. Madame la Duchesse de Duras, on arriving in Brussels, had the sorrow to lose her niece there. I loathe the Brabant capital. It has never served me except as a passage to my exiles. It has always brought sorrow upon myself or my friends. An order of the king summoned me to Ghent. The royal volunteers and the Duc de Berry's little army had been disbanded at Bethune, in the middle of the mud, and of the accidents of a military breaking up. Touching farewells had been exchanged. Two hundred men of the king's household remained and were quartered at Alost. My two nephews, Louis and Christian de Chateaubriand, formed part of that corps. I had been given a billet of which I did not avail myself. A baroness, whose name I have forgotten, came to see Madame de Chateaubriand at the inn and offered us an apartment in her house. She implored us with so good a grace. You must pay no attention, she said, to anything my husband says. His head is a little... you understand? My daughter also is a trifle eccentric. She has terrible moments, poor child. But the rest of the time she is as gentle as a lamb. Alas, it is not she who causes me the greatest trouble, but my son Louis, the youngest of my children. Without God's help, he will be worse than his father. Madame de Chateaubriand politely refused to go and live with such rational people. The king, well lodged, having his service and his guards, formed his council. The empire of that great monarch consisted of a house in the kingdom of the Netherlands, which house was situated in a town which, although the birthplace of Charles V, had been the chief town of a prefecture of Bonaparte's. 
Those names comprise between them a goodly number of centuries and events. The Abbé de Montesquieu, being in London, Louis the Eighteenth appointed me Minister of the Interior ad interim. My correspondence with the departments did not give me much to do. I easily kept up my correspondence with the prefects, subprefects, mayors and deputy mayors of our good towns on the inner side of our frontiers. I did not repair the roads much, and I let the steeples tumble down. My budget hardly enriched me. I had no secret funds, only by a crying abuse I was a pluralist. I was still His Majesty's Minister Plenipotentiary to the King of Sweden, who, like his fellow townsman Henry the Fourth, reigned by right of conquest, if not by right of birth. We discoursed round a table covered with a green cloth in the King's closet. Monsieur de Lally Tollandal, who was, I think, Minister of Public Instruction, delivered speeches even more voluminous and more inflated than his cheeks. He quoted his illustrious ancestors, the kings of Ireland, and muddled up his father's trial with those of Charles I and Louis XVI. He refreshed himself in the evening, after the tears, the sweat, and the words which he had shed at the council, with the lady who had come all the way from Paris out of enthusiasm for his genius. He virtuously strove to cure her, but his eloquence betrayed his virtue and drove the dart more deeply. Madame la Duchesse de Duras had come to join Monsieur le Duc de Duras among the exiles. I will speak no more ill of misfortune, because I have spent three months with that admirable woman, talking of all that upright minds and hearts can find, in a conformity of tastes, ideas, principles, and feelings. Madame de Duras was ambitious for me. She alone saw at once what I might be worth in political life. She always deplored the envy and short-sightedness which kept me removed from the King's councils but she even much more deplored the obstacles which my character placed in the way of my fortune. She scolded me. She wanted to correct me of my indifference, my candour, my ingenuousness, and to make me adopt habits of courtierism, which she herself could not endure. Nothing, perhaps, leads to greater attachment and gratitude than to feel oneself under the patronage of a superior friendship which, by virtue of its ascendancy over society, passes off your defects as good qualities your imperfections as an attraction. A man protects you through his worth, a woman through your worth. That is why, of those two empires, one is so hateful, the other so sweet. Since I have lost that great-hearted person, gifted with a soul so noble, with an intelligence which combines something of the strength of the thought of Madame de Steele with the grace of the talent of Madame de Lafayette, I have never ceased, while mourning her, to reproach myself with any unevenness of temper with which I may sometimes have wounded hearts that were devoted to me. Let us keep a close watch upon our character. Let us remember that, with a profound attachment, we can nevertheless poison days which we would buy back again at the price of all our blood. When our friends have sunk into the grave, what means have we to repair our trespasses? Our useless regrets, our vain repentings, are those a remedy for the pain that we have given them? They would have preferred one smile from us during their life, than all our tears after their death. The charming Clara was at Ghent with her mother. We two made up bad couplets to the air of the Tyrolienne. I have held many pretty little girls on my knees, who are young grandmothers to-day. When you have left a woman, married in your presence at sixteen years of age, if you return sixteen years later, you find her of the same age still. Ah, madame, you have not put on a day. No doubt. But it is the daughter to whom you are saying so the daughter whom you also lead up to the altar. But you, a sad witness to both hymens, you treasure up the sixteen years which you received at each union, 
a wedding present which will hasten your own marriage with a white-haired lady, rather thin. Marshal Victor had come to join us at Ghent, with an admirable simplicity. He asked for nothing, never teased the king with his assiduity, one scarcely saw him. I do not know whether he ever had the honour and the favour of being invited on a single occasion to his majesty's dinner-party. I have met Marshal Victor since. I have been his colleague in office, and I have always perceived the same excellent nature. In Paris, in 1823, Monsieur Le Dauphin was very harsh to that honest soldier. It was very good of this Duc de Belune to repay such easy ingratitude with such modest devotion. Candor carries me away and touches me even when, on certain occasions, it attains the final expression of its ingenuousness. For instance, the marshal told me of his wife's death in the language of a soldier, and he made me weep. He pronounced coarse words so quickly, and changed them so chastely, that one might even have written them. Monsieur de Vaublanc and Monsieur Capel joined us. The former used to say that he had some of everything in his portfolio. Do you want some Montesquieu? Here you are. Some Bossuet? Here it is. In proportion as the game seemed about to take a different turn, more travellers arrived. The Abbe Louis and Monsieur le Comte Beugnot alighted at the inn where I was lodging. Madame de Chateaubriand was suffering from terrible fits of choking, and I was sitting up with her. The two newcomers installed themselves in a room separated from my wife's only by a thin partition. It was impossible not to hear, unless by stopping one's ears. Between eleven and twelve at night, the new arrivals raised their voices. The Abbe Louis, who spoke like a wolf, and in jerks, was saying to Monsieur Bagnot, You, a minister, you'll never be one again. You have committed one stupidity after the other. I could not clearly hear Monsieur le Comte Bagnot's answer, but he spoke of thirty-three millions left behind in the royal treasury. The abbé, apparently in anger, pushed a chair, which fell down. Through the uproar I caught these words. The Duc d'Angoulême! He'll have to buy his national property at the gates of Paris. I shall sell what remains of the state forests. I shall cut down everything. The elms on the high roads, the Bois de Boulogne, the Champs-Élysées. What's the use of all that, eh? Brutality formed Monsieur Louis's principal merit. His talent lay in a stupid love of material interests. If the Minister of Finance drew the forests after him, he had doubtless a different secret from that of Orpheus, who made the woods go after him with his fail fiddling. In the slang of the time, Monsieur Louis was known as a special man. His speciality of finance had led him to accumulate the taxpayer's money in the treasury in order to let it be taken by Bonaparte. Napoleon had had no use for this special man, who was in no sense an unique man, and who was at the most good enough for the directory. The Abbe Louis had gone to Ghent to claim his office. He was in very good favour with Monsieur de Talleyrand, with whom he had solemnly officiated at the First Federation in the Champ de Mars. The bishop was the celebrant, the Abbe Louis the deacon, and the Abbe de Renaud the subdeacon. Monsieur de Talleyrand, recollecting this admirable profanation, used to say to the Baron Louis, Abbe, you were very fine as the deacon in the Champ de Mars. We endured this shame under the great tyranny of Bonaparte. Ought we to have endured it later? The most Christian king had screened himself from any reproach of bigotry. He owned in his council a married bishop, Monsieur de Talleyrand, a priest living in concubinage, Monsieur Louis, a non-practising abbe, Monsieur de Montesquieu. The last named, a man as feverish as a consumptive, gifted with a certain glibness of speech, had a narrow and disparaging mind, a malignant heart, a sour character. One day, when I had made a speech at the Luxembourg on behalf of the liberty of the press, the descendant of Clovis passing in front of me, who went by only to the Breton Montmorin, caught me a great blow with his knee in my thigh, which was not in good taste. 
I gave him one back, which was not polite. We played at the Duc de la Rochefoucauld and the coadjutor. The Abbé de Montesquieu humorously called Monsieur de Lally Tolondal an English beast. In the rivers at Ghent they catch a very dainty white fish. We use tutti to go to eat this good fish in a suburban roadside inn, while waiting for the battles in the end of empires. Monsieur Laborie never failed us at our meetings. I had first met him at Savigny when, fleeing from Bonaparte, he came in at Madame de Beaumont's by one window and made his way out by another. Indefatigable at work, renewing his errands as often as his bills, as fond of doing services as others are of receiving them, he has been calumniated. Calumny is not the impeachment of the calumniated, but the excuse of the calumniator. I have seen men grow tired of the promises in which M. Laborie was so rich, but why? Illusions are like torture. They always help to pass an hour or two. I have often led by the head with a golden bridle, old hacks of memory, unable to stand on their legs, which I took for young and frisky hopes. I also met M. Mounier at the Whitefish dinners, a sensible and upright man. M. Guizot deigned to honour us with his presence. A monitor had been started at Ghent. My report to the King of the 12th of May, inserted in that journal, proves that my feelings on the liberty of the press and on foreign domination have at all times been the same. I can quote the following passages today. You were preparing to crown the institutions of which you had laid the foundation stone. You had fixed a period for the commencement of the hereditary peerage. The ministry would have gained greater unity. The ministers would have become members of the two chambers, according to the true spirit of the charter. A law would have been brought in to allow the election of a member of the chamber of deputies before the age of forty, so that citizens might have had a real political career. It was proposed to discuss a penal code for press offences, after the adoption of which law the press would have been entirely free, for that freedom is inseparable from all representative government. Sire, and this is the occasion solemnly to protest it, all your ministers, all the members of your council, are inviolably attached to the principles of a wise liberty. They derive from you that love of laws, of order and of justice, without which there can be no happiness for people. Sire, let us be permitted to say that we are ready to shed the last drop of our blood for you, to follow you to the ends of the earth, to share with you the tribulations which it will please the Almighty to send you, because we believe before God that you will maintain the constitution which you have given to your people, and that the sincerest wish of your royal heart is the liberty of Frenchmen. Had it been otherwise, sire, we would all have died at your feet in defence of your sacred person, but we would have been only your soldiers, we would have ceased to be your counsellors and your ministers. Sire, at this moment we share your royal sadness. There is not one of your counsellors and ministers who would not give up his life to prevent the invasion of France. You, sire, are a Frenchman. We are Frenchmen, alive to the honour of our country, proud of the glory of our arms, admirers of the courage of our soldiers. We would be willing, in the midst of your battalions, to shed the last drop of our blood to bring them back to their duty, or to share lawful triumphs with them. We can only look with the deepest sorrow upon the ills that are ready to break over our country. Thus again did I propose to add to the charter that which it still lacked, while displaying my sorrow at the new invasion which was threatening France. Nevertheless, I was only an exile whose wishes were in contradiction with the facts which could again open the gates of my country to me. Those pages were written in the states of the Allied sovereigns, among kings and emigrants who detested the liberty of the press, in the midst of armies, marching to conquest of whom we were, so to speak, the prisoners. These circumstances perhaps add some strength to the feelings which I venture to express. My report on reaching Paris made a great noise. 
it was reprinted by Monsieur Lenormand, the younger, who risked his life upon this occasion, and for whom I had all the difficulty in the world to obtain a barren warrant of printer to the king. Bonaparte acted, or allowed others to act, in a manner unworthy of him. On the occasion of my report, they did what the directory had done, on the appearance of Clery's memoirs. They falsified fragments of it. I was made to propose to Louis XVIII stupid ideas for the revival of feudal rights, for the tithes of the clergy, for the recovery of the national property, as though the printing of the original piece in the Monitor de Gand, at a fixed and known date, did not confound the imposture. The pseudonymous writer, entrusted with the production of an insincere pamphlet, was a soldier fairly high up in rank. He was dismissed after the hundred days. His dismissal was ascribed to his conduct towards me. He sent his friends to me. They begged me to intervene, lest a man of merit should lose his sole means of existence. I wrote to the Minister of War, and obtained a retiring pension for this officer. He is dead. His wife has remained attached to Madame de Chateaubriand, by a feeling of gratitude to which I was far from having any claim. Certain proceedings are too highly prized. The most ordinary persons are susceptible to such feelings of generosity. A name for virtue is cheaply acquired. The superior mind is not that which pardons, but that which has no need of pardon. I do not know where Bonaparte, at St. Helena, discovered that I had rendered essential services at Ghent. If he judged the part I played too favourably, at least there lay behind his opinion an appreciation of my political value. I avoided at Ghent, as far as I could, intrigues, which were opposed to my character, and contemptible in my eyes, for at bottom I perceived in our paltry catastrophe the catastrophe of society. My refuge against the idlers and rogues was the oncle du Beguinage. I used to walk round that little world of veiled or tuckered women, consecrated to different Christian works, a calm region, placed like the African quicksands, on the edge of the tempests. There no incongruity shocked my ideas, for the sentiment of religion is so lofty that it is never irrelevant to the gravest revolutions. The solitaries of the Thebaid and the barbarians, destroyers of the Roman world, are in no way discordant facts or mutually exclusive existences. I was graciously received in the close as the author of the Genie du Christianisme. Wherever I go among Christians, the curates flock round me. Next come the mothers bringing me their children. The latter recite to me my chapter on the First Communion. Then appear unhappy persons who tell me of the good I have had the happiness to do them. My passage through a Catholic town is announced like that of a missionary or a physician. I am touched by this dual reputation. It is the only agreeable memory of myself that I retain. I dislike myself in all the rest of my personality and my reputation. I was pretty often invited to festive dinners in the family of Monsieur and Madame Dopp, a venerable father and mother, surrounded by some thirty children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. At Monsieur Coppens, a banquet which I was obliged to accept was prolonged from one in the afternoon to eight in the evening. I counted nine courses. They began with the preserves and finished with the cutlets. The French alone know how to dine methodically, just as they alone know how to compose a book. My ministry kept me at Ghent. Madame de Chateaubriand, less busy, went to see Ostend, where I had embarked for Jersey in 1792. I had travelled, a dying exile, down the same canals along whose banks I now walked, still in exile, but in perfect health. There has always been something fabulous in my career. The miseries and joys of my first emigration revived in my thoughts. I saw England again, my companions in misfortune, and Charlotte, whom I was to meet once more. There is no one like myself to create a real society by calling up shadows. It goes so far that the life of my memories absorbs the feeling of my real life. 
even persons with whom i have never occupied myself if they come to die invade my memory one would say that none can become my companion if he has not passed through the tomb which leads me to think that i am a dead man where others find an eternal separation i find an eternal union when one of my friends departs this earth it is as though he had come to make my home his own he never leaves me again according as the present world retires the past world returns to me if the actual generations scorn the generations that have grown old they waste their disdain where i am concerned i am not even aware of their existence my golden fleece had not yet reached bruges madame de chateaubriand did not bring it to me at bruges in fourteen twenty six there was a man whose name was john who invented or perfected the art of painting in oils let us be grateful to john of bruges but for the propagation of his method raphael's masterpieces would be obliterated to-day where did the flemish painters steal the light with which they illumined their pictures what ray from greece strayed to batavia's shore after her journey to ostend madame de chateaubriand took a trip to antwerp there she saw in a cemetery plaster souls in purgatory smeared all over with fire and black at louvain she recruited a stammerer a learned professor who came expressly to ghent to gaze upon a man so out of the ordinary as my wife's husband he said to me illustre his speech fell short of his admiration and i asked him to dinner when the hellenists had drunk some curaçao his tongue became loosened we got upon the merits of thucydides whom the wine made us find clear as water by dint of keeping up with my guest i ended i believe by talking dutch at least i no longer understood what i was saying madame de chateaubriand spent a bad night at the inn at antwerp a young englishwoman recently confined lay dying during two hours she made her groans heard then her voice weakened and her last moan which the stranger's ear could scarcely catch was lost in an eternal silence the cries of this traveller solitary and forsaken might be taken as a prelude to the thousand voices of death about to rise at waterloo the customary solitude of ghent was rendered more striking by the foreign crowd which was then enlivening it and which was soon to disperse belgian and english recruits were learning their drill on the squares and under the trees of the public walks gunners contractors dragoons were landing trains of artillery herds of oxen horses which struggled in the air while they were being let down in straps canteen women came on shore carrying the sacks the children the muskets of their husbands all these were going without knowing why and without having the smallest interest in it to the great rendezvous of destruction which bonaparte had given them one saw politicians gesticulating along a canal near a motionless angler emigrants trotting from the kings to messieurs from messieurs to the kings the chancellor of france monsieur d'ambray in a green coat and a round hat with an old novel under his arm walked to the council to amend the charter the duc de levis went to pay his court in a pair of old loose shoes which dropped from his feet because brave man and new achilles that he was he had been wounded in the heel he was very witty as can be judged by the selection from his reflections the duke of wellington used to come occasionally to hold a review louis the eighteenth went out every afternoon in a coach and six with his first lord of the bedchamber and his guards to drive round ghent just as though he had been in paris if he met the duke of wellington on his road he would give him a little patronizing nod in passing louis eighteen never lost sight of the preeminence of his cradle he was a king everywhere as god is god everywhere in a manger or in a temple on an altar of gold or of clay never did his misfortune wring the smallest concession from him his loftiness increased in the ratio of his depression his diadem was his name he seemed to say 
kill me you will not kill the sentries inscribed upon my brow if they had scraped his arms off the louvre it signified little to him were they not engraved on the globe had commissioners been sent to scratch them off in every corner of the universe had they been erased in india at pondicherry in america at lima and mexico in the east at antioch jerusalem acre cairo constantinople rhodes in the morea in the west on the walls of rome on the ceilings of caserta and the escorial on the arches of the halls of ratisbon and westminster in the escutcheon of all the kings had they been torn from the needle of the compass where they seemed to proclaim the reign of the lilies to the several regions of the earth the fixed idea of the grandeur the antiquity the dignity the majesty of his house gave louis the eighteenth a real empire one felt its dominion even bonaparte's generals confessed it they stood more intimidated before that impotent old man than before the terrible master who had commanded them in a hundred battles in paris when louis eighteen accorded to the triumphing monarchs the honour of dining at his table he passed without ceremony before those princes whose soldiers were camping in the courtyard of the louvre he treated them like vassals who had only done their duty in bringing men-at-arms to their liege lord in europe there is but one monarchy that of france the destiny of the other monarchies is bound up in the fate of that one all the royal houses are of yesterday beside the house of hugh capet and almost all are its daughters our old royal power was the old royalty of the world from the banishment of the capets will date the era of the expulsion of the kings the more impolitic that haughtiness on the part of the descendant of st louis it became fatal to his heirs the more pleasing was it to the national pride the french rejoiced at seeing sovereigns who when conquered had borne the chains of a man bear as conquerors the yoke of a dynasty the unshaken faith of louis the eighteenth in his blood is the real might that restored his sceptre it was that faith which twice let fall upon his head a crown for which europe certainly did not believe did not pretend that she was exhausting her populations and her treasures the soldierless exile was to be found at the issue of all the battles which he had not delivered louis eighteenth was the legitimacy incarnate it ceased to be visible when he disappeared at ghent i took walks by myself as i do wherever i go the barges gliding along narrow canals obliged to cross ten or twelve leagues of pasture-land to reach the sea appeared to be sailing over the grass they reminded me of the canoes of the savages in the wild oat marshes of missouri standing at the edge of the water while they were dipping lengths of brown holland i let my eyes wander over the steeples of the town its history appeared to me on the clouds in the sky the citizens of ghent revolting against henri de chatillon the french governor the wife of edward the third bringing forth john of gaunt the stock of the house of lancaster the popular reign of van artevelde good people who moved you why are you so incensed against me in what can i have angered you you must die cried the people it is what time cries to all of us later i saw the dukes of burgundy the spaniards came then the pacification the sieges and the captures of ghent when i had done musing among the sentries the sound of a little bugle or a scotch bagpipe would rouse me i saw living soldiers hastening to join the buried battalions of batavia ever destructions powers overthrown and at last a few faded shadows and some names that had passed seaboard flanders was one of the first cantonments of the companions of clodion and clovis ghent bruges and the surrounding country furnished nearly a tenth of the grenadiers of the old guard that terrible army was in part drawn from the cradle of our fathers and came in its turn to be exterminated beside that cradle did the leek give its flower to the arms of our kings spanish manners leave the impress of their character 
the buildings of ghent retraced for me those of granada less the sky of the vega a large town almost bereft of inhabitants deserted streets canals as deserted as the streets twenty-six islands formed by those canals which were not the canals of venice a huge piece of ordnance of the middle ages that is what replaced at ghent the city of the zegris the duero and the zenil the henoralife and the alhambra old dreams of mine shall i ever see you more madame la duchesse d'angouleme who had taken ship on the gironde came to us by way of england with general donadier and m de Sez, of whom the latter had crossed the ocean wearing his blue ribbon across his waistcoat the duke and duchesse de levis followed in the princess suite they had flung themselves into the diligence and escaped from paris by the bordeaux road their fellow-travellers talked politics that scoundrel of a chateaubriand said one of them is no such fool he had his carriage waiting packed in his courtyard for three days the bird has flown they would have made short work of him if napoleon had caught him madame la duchesse de levis was a very handsome very kind woman and as calm as madame la duchesse de durat was restless she never left madame de chateaubriand's side she was our assiduous companion at ghent no one has diffused more quietude in my life a thing of which i have great need the least troubled moments of my existence are those which i spent at noisiel in the house of that woman whose words and sentiments entered into your soul only to restore its serenity i recall with regret those moments passed under the great chestnut trees of noisiel with a soothed spirit a convalescent heart i used to look upon the ruins of shell abbey and the little lights of the boats loitering among the willows on the marne the remembrance of madame de levy is for me that of a silent autumn evening she passed away in a few hours she mingled with death as with the source of all rest i saw her sink noiselessly into her grave in the cemetery of Père Lachaise. she is laid above monsieur de fontaine and the latter sleeps beside his son saint marcelin killed in a duel thus bowing before the monument of madame de levy have i come into contact with two other sepulchres man cannot awaken one sorrow without reawakening another during the night the different flowers which open only in the shade expand to madame de levy's affectionate kindness for me was added the friendship of monsieur le duc de levy the father i may now reckon only by generations monsieur de levy wrote well he had a versatile and fertile imagination which betrayed his noble race as it had already displayed itself in his blood shed on the beach at quiberon nor was that to be the end of all it was the impulse of a friendship which passed on to the second generation m le duc de levy the son attached at present to m le comte de chambord has drawn near to me my hereditary affection will fail him no more than will my fidelity to his august master the new and charming duchesse de levy his wife joins to the great name of d'aubusson the brightest qualities of heart and mind life is worth something when the graces borrow unwearied wings from history the pavillon massin existed at ghent as in paris every day brought monsieur news from france which was the offspring of self-interest or imagination monsieur gaillard an ex-oratorian a counsel in the royal courts an intimate friend of fouché's alighted in our midst he made himself known and was brought into touch with monsieur capel when i waited upon monsieur which was rarely those around him used to talk to me in covert words and with many sighs of a man who it must be admitted was behaving admirably he was impeding all the emperor's operations he was defending the faubourg saint-germain etc etc the faithful marshal so was also the object of monsieur's predilection and after fouché the most loyal man in france one day a carriage stopped at the door of my inn and i saw madame la baronne de vitrolles step out of it she had arrived bearing powers from the duc d'autrante she took away with her a note written in monsieur's hand 
in which the prince declared that he would retain an eternal gratitude to him who saved m de vitrolles fouché wanted no more armed with this note he was sure of his future in case of a restoration thenceforward there was no question again save of the immense obligations due to the excellent m fouché de nantes save of the impossibility of returning to france otherwise than by that just man's good pleasure the difficulty was how to make the king relish this new redeemer of the monarchy after the hundred days madame de custine compelled me to meet fouché at dinner at her house i had seen him once five years before in connection with the condemnation of my poor cousin armand the ex-minister knew that i had opposed his nomination at roi at gonesse at arnouville and as he suspected me of being powerful he wished to make his peace with me the death of louis xvi was the best thing about him regicide was his innocence a praetor like all the revolutionaries beating the air with empty phrases he retailed a heap of commonplaces stuffed with destiny with necessity with the right of things mingling with this philosophic nonsense further nonsense on the march and progress of society and shameless maxims in favour of the strong as against the weak and he was free in his use of impudent avowals on the justice of success the little worth of a head which falls the equity of that which prospers the iniquity of that which suffers affecting to speak of the most horrid disasters with airy indifference as though he were a genius above all such fooleries not a choice idea escaped him not a remarkable thought on any subject whatsoever i went away shrugging my shoulders at crime m fouché never forgave me my dryness and the small effect he produced on me he had thought he would fascinate me by causing the blade of the fatal instrument to rise and fall before my eyes like a glory of mount sinai he had imagined that i would look up as to a colossus to the ranter who speaking of the soil of lyon has said that soil shall be overturned on the ruins of that proud and rebellious city shall rise scattered cottages which the friends of liberty will hasten to come and inhabit we shall have the energetic courage to walk through the vast tombs of the conspirators their blood-stained corpses hurled into the rhone give on both banks and at its mouth the impression of terror and the image of the omnipotence of the people we shall celebrate the victory of toulon we shall this evening send two hundred and fifty rebels under the lead of the thunder those horrible trimmings did not impose upon me because m de nantes had diluted republican crimes with imperial mire because a sansculotte transformed into a duke had wrapped the cord of the lantern in the ribbon of the legion of honour he appeared neither the abler nor the greater for it in my eyes the jacobins detest men who make no account of their atrocities and who despise their murders their pride is provoked like that of authors whose talent one disputes at the same time that fouché was sending m gaillard to ghent to negotiate with the brother of louis xvi his agents at Bâle were parleying with those of prince metternich on the subject of napoleon the second and m de saint leon dispatched by this same fouché was arriving in vienna to treat of the crown as a possibility for m le duc d'orleans the friends of the duc d'autrant could rely upon him no more than his enemies on the return of the legitimate princes he maintained his old colleague m thibaudot on the list of exiles while m de talleyrand struck this or that outlaw off the list or added that other to the catalogue according to his whim had not the faubourg saint-germain reason indeed to believe in m fouché m de saint leon carried three notes to vienna of which one was addressed to m de talleyrand the duc d'autrant proposed that the ambassador of louis the eighteenth should push the son of egalite on to the throne if he saw his way what probity in those negotiations how fortunate they were to have to do with such honest persons yet we have admired sensed blessed those highway robbers we have paid court to them we have called them monseigneur that explains the world as it stands m de montrand came in addition after m de saint leon 
Monsieur le Duc d'Orléans, did not conspire, in fact, but by consent. He let the revolutionary finish his intrigue. A sweet society! In this dark lane, the plenipotentiary of the King of France lent an ear to Fouché's overtures. Speaking of Monsieur de Talleyrand's detention at the Barrière d'Enfer, I said what had, till then, been Monsieur de Talleyrand's fixed idea as to the regency of Marie-Louise. He was obliged by the emergency to embrace the eventuality of the Bourbons, but he was always ill at ease. It seemed to him that, under the years of St. Louis, a married bishop would never be sure of his place. The idea of substituting the younger branch for the elder branch pleased him, therefore, so much so the more in that he had had former relations with the Palais-Royal. Taking that side, without Harvey exposing himself entirely, he hazarded a few words of Fouché's project to Alexander. The Tsar had ceased to interest himself in Louis the Eighteenth. The latter had hurt him in Paris by his affectation of superiority of race. He had hurt him again by refusing to consent to the marriage of the Duc de Berry with the sister of the Emperor. The princess was rejected for three reasons. She was a schismatic, she was not of an old enough stock, she came of a family of madmen. These reasons were not put forward upright, but aslant, and when seen through gave Alexander treble offence. As the last subject of complaint against the old sovereign of exile, the Tsar brought up the projected alliance between England, France, and Austria. For the rest it seemed as though the succession were open. All the world claimed to succeed to the estate of the sons of Louis XIV. Benjamin Constant, in the name of Madame Murat, was pleading the rights which Napoleon's sister believed herself to possess over the kingdom of Naples. Bernadotte was casting a distant glance upon Versailles, apparently because the king of Sweden came from Pau. La Benardière, head of a department at the Foreign Office, went over it to Monsieur de Colincourt. He drew up a hurried report on the complaints and rejoinders of France to the legitimacy. After this kick had been let fly, Monsieur de Talleyrand found means of communicating the report to Alexander. Discontented and fickle, the autocrat was struck with La Benardière's pamphlet. Suddenly, in the middle of the Congress, the Tsar asked to the general stupefaction, if it would not be a matter for deliberation to examine in how far Monsieur le Duc d'Orléans might suit France and Europe as king. This is perhaps one of the most surprising things in those extraordinary times, and perhaps it is still more extraordinary that it has been so little discussed. Lord Clancarty made the Russian proposal fall through. His lordship declared that he had no powers to treat so grave a question. As for myself, he said, giving my opinion as a private individual, I think that to put Monsieur le Duc d'Orléans on the throne of France would be to replace a military usurpation by a family usurpation, which is more dangerous to the sovereigns than any other usurpation. The members of the Congress went to dinner using the sceptre of St. Louis as a rush with which to mark the folio at which they had left off in their proceeds. Upon the obstacles encountered by the Tsar, Monsieur de Talleyrand faced about, foreseeing that the stroke would resound, he sent a report to Louis the Eighteenth in a dispatch which I have seen, and which was numbered twenty-five or twenty-seven, of this strange session of the Congress, he thought himself obliged to inform his majesty of so exorbitant a proceeding because a new said he would not long delay in reaching the king's ears a singular ingenuousness for monsieur le prince de talleyrand there had been a question of a declaration on the part of the alliance in order to make it quite clear to the world that there was no quarrel except with napoleon but there was no pretension to impose upon france either an obligatory form of government or a sovereign who should not be of her own choice this latter part of the declaration was suppressed but it was positively announced to the official journal of Frankfurt. England, in her negotiations with the cabinets, always employed that liberal language, which is only a precaution against a parliamentary tribune. We see that the Allies were troubling themselves no more by the re-establishment of the legitimacy at the second than at the first restoration. The event alone did all. What mattered it to such short-sighted sovereigns, 
whether the mother of European monarchies had her throat cut. Would that prevent them from giving entertainments and keeping guards? The monarchs are so solidly seated to-day, the globe in one hand, the sword in the other. Monsieur de Talleyrand, whose interests were at that time in Vienna, feared, lest the English, whose opinion was no longer so favourable to him, should begin the military game before all the armies were drawn up in line, and lest the cabinet of St. James should thus acquire the predominance. That is why he wished to induce the king to re-enter by the southeastern provinces, in order that he might find himself under the protection of the Austrian Empire and cabinet. The Duke of Wellington had given a precise order not to commence hostilities. It was Napoleon who wanted the Battle of Waterloo. The destinies of such a nature are not to be arrested. Those historic facts, the most curious in the world, have remained generally unknown. In the same way, also, a confused opinion has been formed of the treaties of Vienna relating to France. They have been thought the iniquitous work of a troop of victorious sovereigns, implacably bent upon our ruin. Unfortunately, if they are harsh, they have been envenomed by a French hand. When M. de Talleyrand is not conspiring, he is trafficking. Prussia desired to have Saxony, which will sooner or later be her prey. France ought to have countenanced this wish, for Saxony obtaining an indemnification within the sphere of the Rhine, Landau would have remained to us with our surrounding territories. Koblenz and other fortresses would have passed to a small, friendly state which, placed between ourselves and Prussia, prevented any point of contact. The keys of France would not have been handed over to the shade of Frederick. For three millions which Saxony paid him, M. de Talleyrand opposed the combinations of the cabinet of Berlin. But, in order to obtain the assent of Alexander to the existence of old Saxony, our ambassador was obliged to abandon Poland to the Tsar, notwithstanding that the other powers desired that a Poland of some kind should restrict the freedom of the Muscovites' movements in the north. The Bourbons of Naples redeemed themselves, like the sovereign of Dresden, with money. M. de Talleyrand claimed that he was entitled to a subvention in exchange for his duchy of Benevento. He was selling his livery on leaving his master. When France was losing so much, could not M. de Talleyrand also have lost something? Benevento, moreover, did not belong to the High Chamberlain. By virtue of the revival of the ancient treaties, that principality was a dependency of the states of the Church. As such were the diplomatic transactions which were being completed in Vienna while we were stopping at Ghent. In this latter residence I received the following letter from M. de Talleyrand. Vienna, 4th April. I learnt, monsieur, with much pleasure, that you were at Ghent, for circumstances require that the king should be surrounded with strong and independent men. You will certainly have thought that it was useful to refute, by means of strenuously reasoned publications, the whole of the new doctrine which they are trying to establish in the official documents now appearing in France. It would be useful if something could appear of which the object would be to establish that the declaration of the 31st of March, made in Paris by the Allies, that the act of deposition, that the act of abdication, that the treaty of the 11th of April which resulted from them, are so many preliminary, indispensable and absolute conditions of the treaty of the 30th of May. That is to say that, without those previous conditions, the treaty would not have been made. This admitted, the man who violates the said conditions, or seconds their violation, breaks the peace which that treaty established. It is therefore he and his accomplices who are declaring war against Europe. An argument taken in this sense would do good abroad as well as at home. Only it must be well done, so make it your business. Accept, monsieur, the homage of my sincere attachment and of my high regard. Talleyrand, I hope to have the honour of seeing you at the end of the month. Our minister in Vienna was faithful to his hatred of the great chimera, escaped from the shades. He dreaded a blow from its wing. 
This letter shows, for the rest, all that M. de Talleyrand was capable of doing when he wrote alone. He had the kindness to teach me the movement, leaving the graces to me. It was a question, indeed, of a few diplomatic phrases on the deposition, on the abdication, on the treaty of the 11th of April, and of the 30th of May, to stop Napoleon. I was very grateful for the instructions given me by virtue of my patent as a strong man, but I did not follow them. An ambassador in petto, I was not at that moment meddling with foreign affairs. I busied myself only with my Ministry of the Interior, ad interim. But what was taking place in Paris? End of Book 4, Part 2